everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey. Razzle Dazzle! Knockright. Oh man, Razzle Dazzle. Uh, we'll get into where that comes from in a bit, but first we're going to be chatting about the most recent high-profile vulnerability, PwnKit, that you've probably heard about, uh, followed by some updates from various malware research teams on some pretty interesting attack patterns that we've been seeing across the world. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and shimmy on in. So we've got quite a bit of news to start with today. Uh, the first one is a vulnerability that if you've been paying attention, you've probably seen something on uh, about this being another big, scary security vulnerability impacting all Linux systems. Uh, I know if you're a WatchGuard customer, you probably had a lot of questions for us. We fielded a lot of questions on whether our systems were affected by it or not. Uh, but figured today we'd start by discussing PwnKit. So if you're a Linux admin, uh, at least a, a one that works regularly with Linux-based systems, uh, there's actually a pretty decent chance that you've used this tool called PollKit, which is also called PolicyKit, uh, to manage privileges on your systems. Uh, so basically, PollKit is just a, it's a popular tool that lets unprivileged users interact with privileged processes and run things as root, uh, as well as execute some commands with elevated privileges too by using the pkexec command. Basically, on a Linux system, uh, if you've got familiarity with it, you're probably used to normal old unprivileged users, like maybe I've got Mark on there or something, or Corey or something on those lines. And you can gain root level privileges by running something as sudo. Uh, you may not want to give your users that interact with that system on a day to day basis full root permissions to run everything with sudo. And instead, you'd use something like PollKit in order to limit to very specific commands or very specific intera uh, interactions or programs uh, that those users can run with elevated privileges. Uh, it's got a whole bunch of policies in its configuration file to determine which actions and programs a unprivileged user can execute. And as you might imagine, uh, it's got a lot of protections like whitelisting even environment variables that are used when executing these. So in a Linux system, you can set different environment variables like the, the path that you check to run commands out of, uh, one called LD load, which is what libraries you should load before loading an executable. Uh, some of these, like that later one, are pretty sensitive and can be easily used to load different executables with privileges if they're left unchecked. And so one of the things that pkexec does is it has a whitelist of things that it allows strips out anything else, and then executes whatever command you are allowed to actually run uh, based off of the policy. At least that's how it's supposed to work. So researchers at Qualys found that they could modify the path environment variable. So path on Linux is basically, if you run a command like uh, nmap, path tells it where to look for the actual nmap program on the system. Like it's usually got slash bin slash usr slash bin slash blah 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 slash s bin like a whole bunch of different locations that'll go down in order to identify that program can I, can I put it the dummy way yes like if you install a new application in linux without path you have to go exactly where that application you have to go to that directory first to run it whereas if you have the path command for things it 
typing that particular application from any directory and it should just find it, right? Exactly. It should run regardless of the directory you're in. Yep. Um, so Qualys researchers found, though, that you could actually manipulate that environment variable because it's not one of the ones that's stripped because in general, it just tells you where to find these programs. Uh, and it would allow ultimately the user to execute PK exec uh, in a way where if they don't pass any arguments into it, so they say, I want to run this, and then they leave this as blank, it'll ultimately check through that path and then pull out another environment variable from there, which ultimately lets them run other programs as root. It's, it gets a bit complex. Oops. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I say it gets complex. It's interesting. The actual POC for it is like 20 lines long as a, a C program that you compile and run. And basically all it does is if you don't pass a argument in pkexec and you set the path to something very specific, it basically runs that as a command and then goes and grabs stuff from elsewhere. Um, so uh, Qualys, they gave this vulnerability the name PwnKit, uh, as they said, as a play on it being PollKit, you know, because everything has to have a cutesy name these days. At, at least that cutesy name makes sense. Yes. You know, it's not some just random animal country combination or adjective animal or any vulnerability involving logs of any format at all being called log jam. <laughs> yeah, <like>. exactly. <laughs> uh, the CVE was given was CVE 2021-4034. And it turns out that this one's actually existed ever since the pkexec command was first introduced in 2009. And pollkit and pkexec as a function come by default on almost every single major Linux distribution. So it's a very widespread vulnerability. At the end of the day, it's a local privilege escalation vulnerability. So it's it's not nearly as bad as you know the, the log4j ones that we've been talking about, uh, where it's a remote code execution vulnerability. This one, you have to be local to the system, or at least have to have a program running locally on the system, and it just lets you elevate that program to root. Now, that's still pretty bad. Like, getting privilege elevation is step one in every single exploit chain or This is a beautiful chain. flaw for lateral movement. 100%. By the way, WatchGuard customers, I, I mean, any people that know WatchGuard know we use Linux in places, so you might have curiosity if this affects you uh, in context of being a WatchGuard customer. The short answer is no. Like, uh, depending on how much you know about us, if you use Dibension, you know that it's based on a Linux distro, but we don't have this package in it. This package isn't in our Firebox. It, is, it wasn't in most of our cloud infrastructure. It's just not a package that's in a lot of products. Uh, I will say this package was used in some cloud-related infrastructure associated with DNS Watch, not not product focus, but not, not product facing or, or not customer facing, but our infrastructure. But we patched that one place of it very quickly. So if you're a WatchGuard customer and you're curious, hey, does this affect me? The answer is essentially no, but you can learn more at our knowledge base article. Yep. Uh, we published a KB for it pretty quickly. Definitely check that out. Um, but I mean, this is going to be a flaw. I feel like that like you said, this is a, I don't remember your exact wording, actually, uh, not that I wasn't paying attention to you, but like a gold mine for lateral movement. Uh, because basically, as soon as you gain access to a system and able to run code on it, the first thing you want to do is elevate your privileges. And if you can do that fairly easily on basically any Linux distribution, that's a good flaw to have in your back pocket. Good news is all of them have basically patched at this point. So as long as you've maintained a good patch schedule and you've already updated for this flaw, you're good to go. But, you know, it's not like there's ever unpatched systems remaining out there 
ripe for the picking. And the other thing I would say is, is while this isn't extreme as critical as log for log four J in that it wasn't as high a severity. It is still the type of package that besides just you using it directly in your own code, it could be in products. You know, I had to tell you whether our product was affected because other products use it too. And that will be your only blind spot. If you have other products, whether they be software or hardware that use Linux, there's a chance this could affect them. So you want to go check those products too, or go check the vendors uh, to make sure they have patches if they're necessary. And you know, do your due diligence to ensure that a threat actor doesn't gain that code execution on the system in the first place. Yeah, yeah, they, 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 that would really be nice. <laughs> we hope they don't get to the point where they can do local privilege escalation. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, PwnKit seemed like a big one. It's definitely here to stay, but at the end of it, you know, at least it's not code execution all on its own. So, hooray, a, a minor lull in the deluge of crippling vulnerabilities face our industry faces every week. Um, moving on, uh, so just last week, uh, ESET published some research into a watering hole attacks against macOS Safari users. Uh, so this actually started back in November, I believe, with Google Tag uh, publishing a blog post about a then zero-day code execution vulnerability in iOS and macOS that attackers were using to target Hong Kong websites. Uh, By the way, should I should I quickly or you quickly explain watering hole just it. in case some of our listeners? So if you haven't heard a watering hole attack, at, at the end of the day, it's essentially a legitimate compromised website with a little bit of specifics around it. You've heard us when we, if you listen to our last podcast about the ISR report, you know that Good websites, if they have flaws, can be compromised by bad guys. But a watering hole attack is, is specific in that, say I'm going after a, 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 a victim, a particular target, but they're a hard target. Maybe they have a lot of good security, so getting into them is hard. But because of the nature of the victim, I don't know, say it's a, a, a government so I know they go to a certain type of website. I know governments might have to go to some policy website from a third party that's government related. Uh, whatever reason, I know this target goes to certain websites. I may not be able to find a flaw in their infrastructure to, to target them directly, but what if the sites they go to are weaker and have a vulnerability? What the threat actor does is they find a vulnerability in the watering hole the known place that this target goes to, to do whatever. And that watering hole, if it's vulnerable to something, the bad guy compromises the site and they position, you know, the, the, their real target isn't the site itself. It's just the known place the, the victim goes to. So this is, is it's a very targeted, legitimate, compromised website. But the, the way they're picking who to compromise depends on the target they're going after. I think that's essentially it. Exactly. Great explanation. And so Google originally published their research just at like a high, kind of high level back in November. But it turns out that ESET had discovered the same attack campaign at around the same time and began investigating the exploit itself and the malware that the attackers dropped in quite a bit of detail. Um, so they found that uh, a couple of websites that were involved, uh, I guess all of the websites they found involved, were targeting towards Hong Kong Democrat, uh, democracy advocates, basically. Uh, one of the ones was actually a fake website targeting Hong Kong activists called fightforhk.com. 
which included a malicious iframe element on it to load the exploit kit. Uh, so iframes are a, a way to embed basically one web page into another web page. Uh, we use them in like Dimension and WatchGuard Cloud to load up your Firebox's web UI within those web portals, those web applications. Uh, but attackers can use them illegitimately to create basically a malicious pixel where they hide the iframe element using CSS styling, make it only a pixel by a pixel or hidden. But behind the scenes, it is loading up another website that your browser then executes any code that's on that website. Now, there's been a lot of protections added in recent, I don't know, decades uh, where you know that iframe element doesn't necessarily have access to everything outside of its little protected sandbox. Like it can't just go scrape cookies from the website that it's hiding in. But at the end of the day, it is a web page in there. It's got JavaScript, and that JavaScript can execute in your browser. Um, so they found this one fictitious website. They also found another, the exact same exploit, hosted on a legitimate website. This time it was a pro-democracy radio station called D100. And so it seemed like the threat actors were specifically targeting the types of individuals that would visit these sites, which you would imagine are pro-democracy advocates in Hong Kong. Um, the exploit kit did a really quick check to fingerprint the operating system. So it wanted to see, is it one of the vulnerable versions? Uh, because there was both a lower bounds and a upper bounds of the vulnerable systems. And if it was, then it loaded up the second stage. And that second stage is where it got really interesting. It's like a thousand line JavaScript file that exploited that WebKit vulnerability, which ESET noted at the time, there wasn't actually any research available online about this specific WebKit flaw, so they were kind of the first ones to poke at it. Uh, the web, the exploit itself is really technical, um, but like I'll try and explain it at a high level, where basically it creates two JavaScript objects that share memory locations. So it's two arrays that share the exact same location uh, on the stack for or in the heap for JavaScript. Uh, it then sets the value in one of those objects in a way that the other object treats that value as a pointer. So it's kind of confusing the JavaScript engine behind the scenes into thinking it's a type of object that it really isn't. It then abuses this to retrieve memory locations uh, from the system. So with most code execution vulnerabilities, at some point in time, you have to leak memory locations in order to... Uh, be able to retrieve pointers and inject your own return addresses into there to gain code execution through this flaw. Uh, this is where it gets even more technical, but at an even higher level, it abuses the same bug to return an address that then uh, the exploit kit, uh, to return an address that the exploit kit sprayed onto the heap. So it seeds onto the heap this memory address that it wants to return, which it ultimately executes, or blah, 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 blah ultimately chains into a remote code execution vulnerability that lets them load libraries and executables into memory and executes them. It's pretty dang complex because, I mean, believe it or not, Apple actually has decent security. Uh, they do a good job of protecting against this style of attack, but unfortunately it gets around most of the protections that Safari and iOS and macOS actually have. Uh, the malware loader still has to exploit a local privilege escalation vulnerability. Uh, to both remove this attribute that gets added to any file that gets downloaded on a Mac OS. It's a quarantine one that basically says, ask the user permission in order to run it. And then also it runs it as root using that same vulnerability. So here you can see where a local privilege escalation vulnerability is still critical for an exploit chain. 
Uh, ultimately, though, the final payload that it downloads is a macOS specific malware that they called. Are you ready? Dazzle Spy. I feel like that belongs with some jazz hands <laughs> exactly. to go with the Dazzle. Yeah, that's exactly how I pictured it. Like, ha 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 ha. But, anyways, now, so the malware, it actually uses a lot of common macOS malware techniques. Like it gains persistence via the launch agents folder on Mac, pretty similar to the startup folder on Windows. Uh, its command and control communications are encrypted. Uh, interestingly, though, so it's C2 communications. It uses uh, certificate pinning. So recently we talked about, you know, if you're using the HTTPS proxy for inspection on the Firebox, you might run into some applications like Dropbox that use certificate pinning where, yes, you can man in the middle of that connection, but... The application will stop working because it's expecting a very specific CA certificate in order to run. Well, they actually added that to their malware here. So that if you try and man in the middle of the C2 connection, the malware stops working uh, because it's designed only to accept connections with a server with a very specific cert. Uh, and then when it comes to its actual capabilities, it's you know the basics for a remote access Trojan. It's got remote access capabilities. It's got abilities to connect via RDP to Windows systems, key logging, basically everything you'd expect. <laughs> By the way, just to let you know, we say basics because it's it's the same old stuff to us all the time, but it's all critical stuff. It's literally they have control of your phone and can see every and hear everything and what blah, blah, blah. The, the basics in this case is the worst case. <laughs> yes, phone or computer. It actually appears to have affected both iOS yeah, yeah. and macOS in this and case. Mac OS. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when it came to attribution, they had a few reasons that they believed it was associated or like some interesting things pointing to potentially the Chinese government. Like first off, any timestamps it gathers, it converts to central China time before sending it to the C2. Most of the internal messages in it are written in Chinese. Uh, it's even got a developer's name seemingly left in the code at one point in it, too. Uh, and just by the fact that it's targeting Hong Kong dissonance, like... I was going to say, it's not technical. You couldn't attribute off it. But before you even get into the technical indicators, you kind of guess where it might be coming from. Unless it was a false flag operation of someone trying to blame them. Correct. But, I mean... It feels like we've been seeing more and more of these nation state attacks by, I mean, what I consider to be hostile countries. We are not exactly friends with China uh, targeting their own citizens. Uh, happens often in, I mean, our technical allies, Saudi Arabia, with targeting journalists and other political dissidents inside their own organizations. That whole uh, the Pegasus spyware was widely used against journalists and pro-democracy fighters in some of these uh, authoritarian this is pure states. speculation, but since we're talking about China, I think you know the Hong Kong implications, but Taiwan, I think we all know things that are happening in Taiwan that are associated with China. It would be interesting to see if there's an increase in any nation, state, or state-sponsored cyber attacks in Taiwan just due to the political atmosphere. But yeah, absolutely agree. Uh, nation states are are going after things. What, what concerns me the most about this in general is I, I don't think anyone's naive enough to think that nation states don't have uh, offensive or espionage-based uh, cyber attack campaigns, but it's it's very concerning when it involves private targets, you know, that it gets past just doing espionage from one government to the other, and it involves parties that are just connected, so... But yeah, something to watch. 
Anyways, so moving on to the last topic for the day, which is also involving a nation state. Uh, so Malwarebytes just published an update to the latest activity from Lazarus, which is the North Korean state-sponsored threat actors that have conducted a lot of high-profile attacks, uh, including stealing hundreds of millions of dollars in cryptocurrency from various exchanges. Uh, in their last post, they uh, detailed a campaign that they start they, they identified started with a spear phishing attack uh, using malicious documents that appear to uh, go after people applying for jobs at Lockheed Martin and other major defense contractors. Uh, so they start with a Word doc that says, uh, if you open it up, it's got macros enabled. So it's got that big, you know, enable macros, enable content ribbon at the top. Uh, but it's got a message on there that says this document has been protected by Lockheed Martin IT team. To view or edit this document, please click enable content button on the top yellow bar. Seems like a pretty good way or an easy fish to try and, I mean, crap, I guess if you're, well, I mean, I was going to say if you're applying for a defense contractor, you're probably not likely to get this. But I guess there are non-technical folks that work at these that potentially weren't trained to spot such an obvious yeah, fish. By the way, it's smart that they added that message, but I still, you can definitely tell the, the potential ESL because I would say, please click the enable content button. Would, would have been uh, better of them, and maybe they'd get more victims that way. So it's good to know they even nation states or state-sponsored attackers sometimes make little grammatical mistakes that give their crap away. Yeah, that wasn't me screwing up the text. That was literally how they wrote it. And if to a native English speaker, you can notice something's a little funky if you actually look at it. Um, when it came to the actual malicious content of that file, so the macros ultimately inject the malware into the explorer.exe process on Windows. Um, the second stage uses the Windows update utility actually to execute additional malware stages as a way to bypass detection. And this is it's probably not a first, but it's at least a rare method for executing malware of launching it using the Windows update uh, utility. Um, and then, uh, let's see, the command and control ultimately connects out to GitHub, which was kind of interesting too. And they noted that they've seen a lot of attacks recently uh, using GitHub as a command and control server, again, because it helps it hide that activity with just normal looking traffic potentially, uh, where, you know. And, and legitimate domains. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I guess if it's like someone from accounting, you might question why someone from accounting is connecting to GitHub. But if someone were to infect my laptop, there's no way in heck we would ever identify the C2 connection if it was going to GitHub. <laughs> Maybe you're smart enough because at least you would look at the rest of the URL for the domain if there was one, you know, and at least know the difference between your projects and what the heck is that? Granted, it's not like we're looking at every packet our laptops send every day. <laughs> <laughs> so, Corey, why might you think North Korea is targeting people applying for jobs at Lockheed and Boeing and Northrop Grumman? Hmm, I wonder. <laughs> the defense, right? I mean, I don't. I'm I'm certain they're interested in defense. We know they have a nuclear program. I, yeah. This, by the way, all speculation. This is the quarterback couch couch quarterbacking. But yeah, it, it's not surprising uh, if it. You know, again, attribution's hard. We're going just by what they're saying, but uh, it does make sense. North Korea would have defense contractor targets. I mean, we've seen them target security researchers as well. There was that campaign towards the end of last year uh, where they were sending out 
uh, hitting up researchers on Twitter to like cooperate on some sort of pen test or vulnerability analysis or security research. They share a repository or a, a VS code uh, directory that then has, you know, effectively macros or at least build scripts in it that would then infect the researcher themselves. Like they seem to be going after private citizens in potentially useful positions for them to then turn around and then go after defense contractors or whoever those security researchers are looking at. By the way, it just reminds me of a prediction that I think is like three years ago now, but I still think, I, I know they, they have continued to talk about it, though nothing's happened, but we need some global, whether it's uh, NATO, whether it's any worldwide organization to come up with the the rules of engagement for cyber war. Uh, one of the reasons that at least formally countries, uh, you know, there's a what you do that gets you into a war is because we have certain agreements on what constitutes a warful act, at least in kinetic physical war. We don't have those rules because of cyber war. And because that prediction hasn't hit yet, we've had three years of just accelerating, accelerating nation state attacks that, in my opinion, are getting worse and worse and going more and more from just targeting the governments they're against to targeting collateral damage at private citizens, private organizations. It, it's just this is a bad situation. Governments need to get involved. I'm sure they are. Uh, but they, I mean, crap, it's getting worse. They may be getting involved to some degree. Uh, North Korea's internet went out for quite a sizable <laughs> yeah. chunk of time last That's Wednesday. That's a good point. And yeah. People are yeah. interesting. To, they're pointing it like to a DDoS attack against the nation in North Korea specifically. So, Hey, maybe they are getting kind of ticked off at going after defense contractors. I agree. And, but I would like to see a diplomatic, I would like to see rules of engagement that besides just the, uh, our response to that the attack, whether that's in the open or not, we actually, as as a bunch of countries, say this is what the, you know, there's a lot of don'ts in general, but if it is government related, there's here's the don'ts that would get you to have a reaction. Yep, <laughs> I I would too like to see that, and I'm sure that North Korea would follow along with any dip diplomatic yeah. agreement that we come up with. By the way, yeah, NATO's <laughs> been doing this forever, and I I believe China and Russia are the ones that are saying, sure, but here's what we think about it, and there's no consensus. Maybe not, it's not NATO that's discussing it, what's the other one? <laughs> Anyways, doesn't matter. Either way, like if you are, I guess, applying for a new job at a potentially sensitive location, be very careful about Word documents you get that claim to be about salary or job offers, especially if they've got that enable content button popping up in there as soon as you accidentally or mistakenly open them seems to be that people in high-value locations are actively being targeted by North Korea. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey's at SecAdapt. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.